Our scripture reading today comes from Genesis 3, verses 1 through 13. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, My house will be called a house of prayer but you are making it a den of robbers. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Open our hearts and minds to your word, O Lord, that it would bear fruit and give you glory. Amen. The famous traveler and explorer Sir Walter Raleigh, it's reported that when he was walking with the queen, and they were fond of each other, they really supported each other's lives and calling. As he was walking with her, they came to a place where the rain had created some mud and dirt. And so he took off his cloak and put it on the ground for her to walk over so that her feet wouldn't get dirty. Now whether that story actually happened or not, the fact that it survived hundreds of years tells us how unusual an act that would be to take off your cloak for someone to walk on. So what did it mean? Well, it meant that he really honored her and that he would do anything for her. And so in the Old Testament, there's a story of Elisha, the prophet, going into a room where there were some military officers. And uh, he asked to speak with Jehu. So Jehu went with him into another room, and Elisha proceeded to take a flask of oil and anoint him and say to him, um, you're the next king of Israel. And then Elisha was gone. Jehu comes back into the room and his colleagues say, so, so what did he say to you? Ah, uh, nothing. You know, he's just a crazy guy. And they said, no, he's not. What did he say to you? He said, I'm the next king of Israel. 
And their eyes got wide. They stood up. They took their cloaks off of themselves and put them on the steps so that, so that Jehu could leave the room walking over their cloaks. So what was that about? At that moment, they were acknowledging that even though there was already a king in Israel, they were acknowledging Jehu as being the king, and they were willing to do anything for him, even at risk to their own lives. And so we have all these people. We're told a large crowd of people when Jesus was riding into Jerusalem who, who took off their cloaks, put those cloaks on the ground in front of those donkeys, two donkeys, we'll get to that. And, and uh, why? I mean, why did so many people take off their cloaks and put them on the ground? And yes, there were also people who took branches and started waving them. Well, you have to know that the atmosphere would have been electric. Um, in part because it was the Passover. And it was the annual celebration of that signature event in Israel's history when God had saved his people from Egypt, the superpower, and from the slavery they had known in Egypt. Um, and, and in addition to that, they were expecting that the next anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, would come at any time. There was this sort of window of about a hundred years that was, you know, that that seemed to be pointed to in the Old Testament prophecies, and they were coming to the end of that, and they were thinking, boy, it would be just like God to come again on the Passover, when everybody's gathered in Jerusalem. So there was a sense of expectation, and you know, everybody had heard of Jesus. Tragically, today, almost everyone knows someone, or knows someone who knows someone who has died because of the pandemic. Well, in that day and age, everyone knew someone who had been healed by Jesus. And they knew he was important. They, they call him a prophet. In fact, that's even stated in our text today. But now he was riding into Jerusalem on these donkeys. And that was like, okay, this is, this is a direct hyperlink back to the prophet Zechariah. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He's admitting it. There's, there's, no, there's no confusion now. And so some people, apparently a large number of people, sort of spontaneously said, okay, sort of like those colleagues of Jehu, if you're the Messiah, we're in. We're in. We're, we're going to play all out. We are at your service. And then there were those who waved the palm branches, and that's actually a hyperlink back to an event that happened between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's about 200 years earlier. The people of Israel were under a foreign power just as they were now. In that case, it was the Greeks. But now, the Greeks were forcing them to eat Gentile food. And also said, you can't circumcise your kids anymore. You can't celebrate the Sabbath anymore. And so a guy by the name of Judas Maccabeus said, we can't, we can't, even if we die, we cannot allow this to happen. And so he formed a band of ragmuffin soldiers, and wouldn't you know it, they actually repelled the, the occupying army. And then the Syrian, or the Greeks sent a larger army, and they repelled them. Of course, it helped that the army was finally called back to fight another battle in another part of the empire. But this led to 
the, the, the Jewish people being able to rule over their own land for a hundred years. Call it the Heismonian dynasty. And actually, Herod was a very, very, very distant relative of the, Hi, of the Heismonians. Boy, it's a hard word to pronounce. So, so um, you know, that, that memory was vivid. And when the, the Maccabeans came into Jerusalem, the people took palm branches and started waving them. Another sort of indication of their thinking, okay, this is it. At least hoping this is it. The other thing that's interesting is when Judas Maccabeus and his family went into Jerusalem, they went to the temple and they cleansed the temple. They cleansed the temple by destroying that altar that had been created there to Zeus. They got rid of all the remains of the pigs that had been sacrificed there. If you're a Jew, that, that's anathema. So they cleanse the temple. And what does Jesus do when he enters into Jerusalem? He goes to the temple, doesn't he? We even call it the cleansing of the temple. So all of this you know, is, is, seems to be clearly saying, this is the moment, this is the day, this is the time. Only when Jesus cleansed the temple, he didn't cleanse the temple of foreign influence. He cleansed the temple of those obstacles to foreigners, to Gentiles being able to worship in the temple. Because all this was happening in what was called the courtyard of the Gentiles. All the animals that were being sold and uh, money exchanged for clean money. And, and so this was the area where people who were not Jews were allowed to go into the temple and worship God. But try worshiping God with the sound of all those animals and all this raucous people coming together to buy and to sell. It was just not a very good place for worship. And, and uh, it, it says here in the text, um, you know, he quotes to them that the scripture that says, my house will be called a house of prayer. You know how sometimes I will say something and have you fill in the blank? Like Jesus is the light of the world, right? These, these New Testament writers do that all the time. Rather than completing the text, they have you complete the text. So the text actually says, this is supposed to be house of prayer for all nations. So like, it's like they had to say it <laughs> in order to realize what, what was wrong here. They were preventing this house of prayer from being a prayer, house of prayer for all nations. Of course, a few days later, the people are crying out, crucify him. And before you know it, they've killed the Son of God. What's going on? Well, one way of understanding of what's going on is Jesus draws to himself not only the praise of people, but the poison of people. It's like he's drawing the poison out of themselves, bringing it to the surface. Bringing it, drawing it to himself and drawing it into himself so that on that cross, he takes that poison. He neutralizes it as only he could. Reminds me of my brother and sister-in-law who are, as you know, missionaries. In fact, during this month in Lenten season, we are financially supporting them and contributing to their mission work. And they have this little gadget. Um, and so there are poisonous snakes where they are. In fact, when we were in... In, uh, in Kenya, we were warned, whenever you go into an outhouse, make sure, you make sure, make sure there's no snakes, okay? And we made sure there were no snakes. Um, but if you do get bit by a snake, it can be lethal. 
lot of people die of snakes. But they have this gadget. It's kind of, I get, it, it puts out this electricity, and it neutralizes the poison. So Jesus draws to himself people's praise, but he also draws to himself that poison, that poison that ultimately made people crazy enough to kill the Son of God, to kill their own Messiah. Well, we call this Holy Week. And, you know, there can be different reasons why we call it Holy Week, because it's special. You know, it's, 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 I mean, without the events of this week, we wouldn't be here, not only today, but every Sunday. We wouldn't be a community. Um, but, but the word holy means some different things in the Bible. I think all of them come into play here. Yes, they have to do with cleansing. To make something holy is to, is to purify it and cleansing. And as we've just talked about, Jesus on that cross drew that poison, drew that sin, along with the accompanying guilt and shame into himself so that we could be, feel, believe we have really been cleansed and purified. But to be holy isn't just to, um, isn't just to uh, um, you know, uh, be cleansed, it also means to be conformed or transformed. And I'm just gonna move our Okay, let me bring that back again. Somehow, I lost one. I can't believe it. There's, there's got to be a, tri a Bermuda Triangle someplace where my slides end up every week. I just, I just don't get it. But anyway, so um, I, I'm going to suggest a way of thinking about this week is a being made Holy Week. Okay. And then for some of us, it may mean something that we've done, some things that we've done. Maybe it's just the whole pile of things that we've done. It's time to let it go. Last week we heard a, a guy singing about letting that story go. I loved what I read last night. I was reading a passage where there's that woman who anoints Jesus with her tears and wipes his, uh, his feet with her hair. And Jesus says at the end of that story, you know, it's those who have been forgiven much who love much. It's time to let go of the guilt and just be so grateful and to love Jesus because we've been so forgiven. But yeah, then there's that also that conf being conformed to Christ, being transformed. That's what being a disciple is all about. We'll talk about that again. But there's a third understanding of holy that, that um, we don't talk about a lot, even though it's, it's emphasized a whole lot in the Bible, and that's to be consecrated, to be set apart for a purpose. And, and so, you know, Jesus is the Messiah of the, of the people of God. God has always been concerned about having a people that sort of mirrors his own reality. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God. And, and so it doesn't say, say to daughters and sons in Zion. It says, say to daughter Zion. See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And the people of Israel were used to thinking of themselves as a people, of God relating to them as a people. And we live in a very individualistic culture that makes it very difficult for us sometimes. As a family, we can think kind of corporately, but in terms of a whole church or as the church, it's really difficult. I mean, how often do you think of the people next door? 
in the same breath as you think of BRC. We've become so divided and segregated. And, and so it's hard for us to think about church in that way. Um, I, I think it's real easy today for us to think of church in terms of a purveyor of services. Now, back in the first century, the Jewish leaders were providing this service of, of animals being able to be bought. And actually, the law commanded people to buy their animal for sacrifice in Jerusalem. And also to provide some laundered money. Actually, money that didn't have any of the insignias of the Roman Empire or emblems of the emperor. And so they were providing this service. And sometimes we think of churches providing services. You know, sermons, um, sacraments, um, Bible studies, services that, you know, that we can consume, that we can take advantage of. And of course, that's a good thing. I mean, some churches, I mean, it's like they have a special class for people between, you know, little kids between three and three and a half. We have, we have a class for everyone here. And that, that can be a good thing. But that's not how the Bible understands the people of God. That's not how it understands the church. You won't find anywhere in the New Testament where it says, okay, if you're a church, you need to be offering Sunday school. You need to be offering the sacraments. You need to be offering all these things and some checklist that indicates whether or not we're a church. That's not how the New Testament understands church. The church is a people that God calls and consecrates to bear witness to him, to be a city on a hill, to use the language of Jesus. And yes, as the salt of the earth, we go into those places we live, work, play, and learn. That's true. But primarily, and first of all, we're called, consecrated to be a people that bears witness by our lives and by our words to the reality that Jesus Christ is Lord and his kingdom is coming. On Friday at our morning gathering, we were talking about hope. Is, is hope always in the future? And, and someone raised that question. I says, actually, hope is supposed to be now that the role and call of the church is to take that future hope and at least in some partial way to live that future hope now for people to see what's ahead. Now, I say all this sheepishly for a couple of reasons. First of all, we're in the middle of a pandemic. <laughs> it's, not the, it's not the optimum time to be talking about church when it's so difficult for us to get together. Although as I was bringing this before the Lord, and I was feeling kind of uneasy about it. He says, it's perfect time. Sort of like a rubber band. Once this pandemic is over, we're going to be so tempted just to go back to the way. In fact, that's what we hope for. That's our yearning. It's going to feel so good to be back where we were before. This is perfect time to ask ourselves, okay, what is my life going to look like when this is over? What do I want to choose? Not have chosen for me, but what do I want to choose? The other reason why I feel kind of awkward about this is because I feel kind of ambiguous about church. I was listening to a podcast this week, and uh, a guy by the name of Steve Cuss, and uh, he was interviewing a person whose name was A.J. Sherrill. And uh, he's, you know, he's a pretty important guy. He was the pastor of what may be the largest church in Michigan until recently. I mean, really a well-known church. Leaders there are well-known. And now he's in North Carolina, he's pastoring there. And, 
And this particular interviewer, at, all, at the end of all of his interviews, I've heard a few of them, he says, you know, at the end of, of the interview, I always ask people to go through this gauntlet of questions. And one of the questions is, is always this question. Of all the things that you teach and preach, which is the most difficult for you to actually believe and live on a daily basis? And immediately he said, church. I was really surprised. I mean, here's this guy who was pastor of a well-known church in Michigan. Big, big church. And he says, by the way, I'm not talking up about church out there. I'm included. I'm included. I'm as dissatisfied with me as I am with the church in general. It's hard to be church today. The other thing I'm, I'm aware of, though, is that I think it's an occupational hazard for pastors to look when it comes to the church, to think of the church and look at the church in terms of what the glass being half empty rather than half full. And you know, I, I, I thought this week of a verse in, in uh, Isaiah 43 where it says, uh, do not remember the former things, do not consider the things of old, for I am about to do a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers to flow in the desert. And I got to do some thinking, ask Sharon to help me do some thinking about are there, are there ways in which we can see, have been able to see during this pandemic, something springing forth. And just a few of the things, I mean, there, there's a, Sharon had two pages, but I'm just going to mention a few things. You know, I think of the generosity of people. I mean, soon after this pandemic started, there were people who came to me within the church, gave me significant amounts of money and said, we want this to be available to anyone who needs it. There were people outside of this church who came to me, people I didn't know, who gave me money. This is for people in your church who may be struggling. One party who I didn't know gave money for our food pantry just to make sure there's enough food in the food pantry. So, and, and that generosity continues. I mean, just this week, I, I, people have to be, you know, remain anonymous, but generosity shown this week toward ourselves and others. And, you know, I, there's people in this room who've been very generous, not just with money, but in so many other ways. That's a beautiful thing. Yeah, I, I think of technology. Now, I have to admit that this, this Palm Sunday, I, I have some mixed emotions. I, I was traumatized a, bit, a little bit last Palm Sunday. I, maybe you remember that I, I, I created a video. At that point, it was all putting together things on video and loading it up to YouTube. And I kept saying, it's almost there. It's almost there. And it didn't happen in the morning. It didn't happen in the afternoon. I think it happened that night that people finally received a copy of the Palm Sunday service. That was, that was, this is Palm Sunday. It was just so humbling and, and, and embarrassing. But we've come a long way since then. And, and so technology, while it can be a problem, can also be a gift. And I think it will be an important resource going forward. That's sprung up during this time. There have been new babies and baby showers drive through baby showers. Um, speaking of showers, we have refurbished an apartment. Not only has the shower been replaced, but the whole thing has been replaced. 
Laura Brown is here, and she and, and Larry did a big part of it, but other people put lots of time into it as well. And that's, that's a sign of new life. There's going to be a garden, at least it's in the planning stages. There's going to be a garden in back of the well. And I love the metaphor of a garden. It's hugely important in the Bible. I mean, there's that garden of, Gethse or of Gethsemane, um, Garden of Eden. Okay, and Garden of Gethsemane, I think, is meant to actually be a hyperlink back to that. Jesus wants to bring us back to that garden. And there's all these pictures in the Bible about the garden and about gardening. And I love the metaphor of that. And, and, and the struggle to get us back to the garden. In the case of our folks here, there's the problem of water. <laughs> How are we going to get water? There's no faucets. How are we going to get water to that? But there's very creative ideas that are already being worked on. And that, to me, is a sign of life. People just saying, well, let's, let's put a garden back there. Um, we had a two-hour retreat as a consistory this year. And a lot of ideas came out of that, including... Letting, giving you the opportunity to give us ideas. So Alan's here this morning. He's now working on a suggestion box for us. So you can give ideas for how we can enflesh our life as the body of Christ together. Um, that retreat produced a lot of, lot of good ideas that also I think made it possible for some transformation to happen even personal transformation, and I speak of myself. I think of a recent decision by the consistory to include a group of people in the temple, in the life of the church, that have, for most of the history of the church, been excluded. To welcome them, their spouses, their kids, to say, you're welcome here. You belong here. That's a sign of something erupting. And then there's the fact that a year ago at our consistory retreat, we decided that we were going to have, try to create uh, a core of discovery. Kind of goes along with Lewis and Clark. And, uh, and we finally decided, you know, we're, we're going to stop waiting for this. We're just going to create it. A group of people from our church who are spying out the land, um, the culture, uh, looking at what other churches are doing, hoping to spark creative ideas, a group of people that are thinking about the future. And that's in the process of being formed. That's, that's exciting. These are signs of new life in the midst of the wilderness. Our prayer team has sort of had a resurrection during this time, I, and I just so appreciate their ministry as well. Not to mention that prayer box out in front, which Alan created. And you know, that prayer, that prayer um, or that uh, food pantry has just sort of expanded, and it's really poignant, the things that people ask us to pray for, and the answers to prayer. It's, it's just so satisfying. And the people that we talked to, just yesterday I had a really good conversation with someone in that area. So these are all signs of something happening that we can be grateful for. And so we have a, a mission statement. And... Um, that to me is also a sign 
It's been around for a few years now, but the consistory is saying, you know, we need to bring that out. You've maybe seen it on the screen the last few weeks if you happen to be looking online or looking at the video later. And I think it, it speaks to what we sense it means to, to, to lay down our cloaks. So I'm going to bring that up here. Um, just the first couple of paragraphs. So our vision is to be a growing community of fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. That's our vision. And again, these are to be a people who are willing to, to lay down our cloaks to say we're all in who bear witness through our words and actions to the good news of God's reconciling love and his desire to restore all things through Christ. So how do we do that? A vital community life involves around four, revolves around four core activities. Worship, discipleship, fellowship, and witness. Each requiring intentionality and reflection, constant adaptation. Boy, we have had to adapt this last year, haven't we? And commitment. We didn't just pull those out of a hat. You know, worship, discipleship, fellowship, and witness. Many churches would say the same thing about their four core activities. So let me just say something about each of those uh, a second. I'm going to just fast forward to the rest, through the rest of this. Maybe not so fast. And so, um, you know, Jesus goes right to the temple right to the place of worship, right? And over this last several weeks, we've been talking about being, um, uh, 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 you know, are being trained to reign and that the Bible says that we are a kingdom of priests. And so that's, that's really important. And, and you know, a priest isn't someone who simply worships. A priest is someone who makes it possible for other people to worship. Like Dave back there. I don't know what we would do without Dave, right? But the other thing is, you also, each of you is important for making it possible for other people to worship. Now, right now, we're, an awkward, we're at an awkward time, and I entirely respect people who say, it's not time for me and, and our kids or whatever to come. I, I get that, respect that, support that fully. But at some point, there's that actually being here. And again, because we're American Christians, we tend to think in terms of, oh, see, so, you know, um, do I need that this week? Or, you know, I, at this point, I can get what I need just as easily at home. We've got online worship. <laughs> when a part of our responsibility is to make it possible for others to worship. And we all know that when there's more people, and when there are the people that we know who are there, worship is different. You know? If there had only been two or three people waving palm branches and, and putting down their cloaks, you know, it might have been, well, that's interesting or that's kind of odd. But, but because there were so many people worshiping, people got into it. People got carried away. The children were crying out, Hosanna in the temple. And so just by being here, we help other people worship. And so that's a part of being a priest. Another part of being a priest is that we're willing to identify the idols in our lives as well as, you know, in the life of our community. And so priests, I mean, they worshiped idols at least as much as anyone else in the Old Testament. And so Jesus goes into that, that temple and he overturns the altar to mammon. 
the altar with the money on it. Nothing wrong with money. Money is a great resource and gift in so many ways. And Jesus called it mammon just to give us a sense, but it can so easily become a God. So easily. This week I was hearing a, 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 a news program or podcast and someone was talking about taxing the rich. I mean, the really rich. And, th- and this person suggested, you know, I don't think the rich people will have any difficulty with that if all of them have to pay the same amount. And the person said, why? Because when you're that rich, you don't care about money in terms of what it's going to buy you. You're just into competition with others. And if everyone's in the same boat, everyone's having to pay the same cut, they'll be okay with it. I found that really interesting. Um, So money becomes a source of identity. This is who I am. This is what makes me valuable. But for most of us, it's not like that. In fact, just last night, God was kind of in a double bind. He wanted to bless the people. You know, when he, so when you get into the, into, into, uh, the land of, of Canaan, he, and it, it was supposed to be a garden, like a garden of Eden, okay? And he wanted to bless them, but he also knew what was going to happen. I just read this last night. When you have eaten and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I am giving to you today. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. So you know, part of being a priest is identifying the idols and it can be anything. Any good thing can become an idol. And so it's part of being made holy. Being made holy weak is saying, are there things in my life that are in the way? Of my even taking in what's being said today. And then there's discipleship, which is basically being a student. It's learning. And we want to learn all that we can about Jesus. It's part of the reason we gather on Sundays. Part of my job is to help you learn more about Jesus. And I can do that because I'm learning more all the time. All the time I'm learning more about Jesus and what this kingdom and what this life is all about. And so we want to learn more about Jesus, and we also want to become like Jesus. And, you know, um, I was just listening to some of the same Steve Cuss guy the other day, and he, he's a pastor. Um, he, he, he talks a lot about family systems theory because it kind of explains how groups work. And he said, you know, awareness isn't enough. Listening to a sermon, it says, oh, okay, I get that now. He says, you don't get it. Awareness isn't enough. You've got to talk about it. You've got to talk about it with other people. And so someone in our congregation said to, to Sharon this week, you know, I remember when you first came, and you had that women's Bible study. And then later, I was a part of a journey group. Those two things changed my life. Yikes. There's something about learning together. In fact, I think that's how God designed us to. And there's lots of different ways that that can happen. So that's something to think about as we think about what it means to be consecrated to God and his call. And then there's fellowship. You know, 
we may be thinking potluck meals, and actually the, the early church ate a whole lot. They ate together every day, we read in the book of Acts, so that's good. The only problem was that eventually those Gentiles got led into the church, and that complicated things because they didn't eat the same food. In fact, you could hardly stand the smell of Gentile food if you were sitting at the same table. And now we get to why there are two donkeys. A couple of years ago, I, I read a paper and this, that I turned all sorts of lights on for me. And you might say, well, the reason there are two donkeys here, a, a mother donkey and a colt of a donkey, is because that, that had to happen to, to fulfill the Old Testament prophecy. That's not true. The Old Testament prophecy says, see your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. In other words, the kind of donkey, it's a colt that that, that person would be riding. Matthew adds the word and. Gentlemen riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He actually changes scripture, which the New Testament writers often do. They take the Old Testament text, they see it as a living word that speaks to the present moment in present circumstances, and there's an adaptation that happens. Why two donkeys? I mean, picture this. I mean, I'm not even sure it's possible. Someone riding on two donkeys? I mean, maybe if they're the same level, but we're talking about a mama donkey and a baby donkey, or maybe a teenage donkey, I don't know. But, you know, how do you do that? Uh, you know, <laughs> and that's supposed to look distinguished? I think Matthew is adding this detail. And, and people who wrote biographies were expected to add little details to bring out a truth. There's a lot of this doubling that happens in Matthew. And this is what I think is happening. There's the mama, the mother donkey, representing the Jewish Christians. And then there's the colt, the baby donkey, representing the Gentile Christians. They don't always get along. And in fact, it's, it's, it's hard for them to, to get coordinated. And we see this throughout the New Testament. This is such a difficult struggle. Um, but Jesus can ride them both. Jesus can do that. And with Jesus' help, we can too. But it will require us to do what the disciples did. And that is to put our cloaks on those donkeys, to give up our cloak, to give up those things that are unique and special to us, not in the sense that we don't value them, but that we value them a whole lot less than Jesus. And so the Apostle Paul writes, in Christ there is no Greek or Jew, barbarian or Scythian, um, or, bar Scythian or, or slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. And it's only when we make Christ everything and we realize that we're doing this not because it's easy or comfortable, but because Jesus needs us to. When those uh, disciples went into um, the village to get the donkeys, and, and, and the disciples said, but what if, what if the owners say, what are you doing? Jesus says, just tell them the Lord needs it. The Lord needs us. The Lord absolutely needs us to get along. He absolutely needs us to love one another when it seems impossible to do that. 
It's not a matter of wanting to. He needs us to. And then there's a witness. Some of the witnesses in this story are kids. Hosanna to the son of David. And the Pharisees say, tell those kids to shut up. Sharon and I, um, when we were in Kalamazoo, Michigan, attended a multicultural, multiracial church, small church. And it wasn't always easy, I'll be honest with you. And, uh, but we had some friends there that we had known for a long time, Tim and Sharon. And the fact that we could be friends again itself was a testimony to the gospel because there was a time when that Sharon, the other Sharon, worked for us and I had to fire her. She wasn't doing her job. But the fact that we could be, and she was even a part of my church at the time. Okay. So this was tough. But the fact that we could be reconciled itself was witness to the power of the gospel. And they loved Jesus Christ. But they had a kid, I forget his name now. He was like seven, six, seven, eight years old. And he would just walk up to strangers and start talking about Jesus. He would go up to the neighbors and start talking about Jesus. Why wouldn't you? I mean, if, if, we, if you actually believe the stuff the Bible says about Jesus, why wouldn't you talk about it? You know, I talk about my toys. I talk about my mom and dad. Why wouldn't I talk about Jesus? And so he just did it. The parents were just amazed. Um, and so there's just bearing witness. Now, we've got to be careful here. You know, I was talking with a gentleman out in front yesterday. He's, he came out. He's, he's a tortured man. And he, came, he, he says, Pastor, I think I know what I need to do to feel better. I need to tell people about Jesus. I need to evangelize. I said, okay, well, how are you going to do that? I got a bullhorn at home. I'm going to go downtown and tell people what's wrong with them. He says, you know, I, I'm not sure that's the best approach. I'm not sure that's going to work. Well, it doesn't have to work. I just, people have to know. He says, you, know, I mean, you might want to tell God, people how much God loves them first. You know, that, I think that might be a good approach. You know, it's, it's hard today because of what the name of Jesus and Christians often are associated with. And then, and then there's the approach that Jesus and John suggest at the beginning of John's gospel. When the disciples of John the Baptist go to Jesus and they say, so um, where are you staying? He says, come and see. The whole idea here is when we're, when we're living the life when we're living the Jesus life together, when, when we're a group of people that love each other even though we're not supposed to be able to, then we can say, well, come and see. I know what you've been hearing about Christians. Just, just come and see when we're living this life. And that's the idea. So how do we get from Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday? And I, and I know I, I've taken quite a bit of your time this morning. Of course, it's Holy Week, right? It's, it's a week where we make sacrifices. How do, how do we get there? Well, there's no way to get to Easter Sunday without going through Good Friday. And yeah, Jesus died and, 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 and made it possible for us to be forgiven. And he said, if you want to follow me, you will have to take up your cross. And so this is my question, the question I'd like to leave with you. What would... What in you would need to die? For you to lay down your cloak and to be consecrated to playing your full role in the body of Christ.
What would need to die? It may be that you're already more than involved, but what would need to die for you to be more, more given at a heart level? Whatever. What would need to die? Second question. Once you identify that, who are you going to tell? And then the third question is, what are you going to do about it? Maybe it's what, what are you going to start to do about it? There's no way to Easter without going through the cross. And let me just add this caveat in closing. You may have to go slowly. You know, this, is, this, is, this can be tough for people for lots of reasons. So we have to go slowly. Maybe what's the next step, Lord? What needs to die for me to be consecrated to this thing that you say you need for the world to know that Jesus is real and alive? Let's pray together. Lord, may it be so. May you build on what you've already started. Attend to these bodies that are such an important part of being the body of Christ. Attend to Ray's body. Thank you that there's been some significant improvement. Attend to Nancy's body. Again, we thank you that some healing has happened. Attend to Alan's body and Chuck's and Gerlinda's, to Deb's as well. And thank you for the new bodies, the new little people that have been born this last year and especially this last week. Samuel, Samuel Pileshi. We've got, a, we've got two Samuels now. May he become the great man of God that the Samuel of the Bible was for uniting and leading God's people in the ways of God. Lord, we pray for Raj and Sue, their work with a tribe in Kenya who actually embody the opposite of our culture. For them, it's the group that always comes first, and that makes it very difficult for individuals to come to Jesus and to stay with Jesus. Give Raj and Sue wisdom and power to carry out the unique work you've given them to do and their unique call. And Lord, continue to travel with us through this desert we are calling a pandemic. And yes, there are springs we've encountered along the way, each of us in our own individual ways, and us as a congregation that have nourished us and sustained us. Protect your people, but also prepare us for the future. And now, Lord, may we be reminded of why we have been called as we pray the prayer that you taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. 
Amen.